You were back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, you don't have to look far to see the COVID conflict between governors and mayors and state legislators. That is our Longview conversation today. Our analyst, Neil Milner, joins us this morning. Hi, Neil. Hi. Hi, Catherine. So this has been an interesting two weeks with all the changes and the tweaks to our safe travels program. Yes, it has. And it's in, in many, many ways, it's very different from the kinds of conflicts or the way conflicts play out in the, on the mainland in regard to regulating COVID uh, uh, responses. One of the general ways, of course, involves polarization, where you have a, a state legislature that's of a different political party than the governor, and then there's all kinds of fights over individual rights. It goes to court, and um, the court then takes action, and uh, everything is politicized, including masks. Here, the thing is a little bit different because we really don't have a strong anti-mask movement. You don't have a strong Republican Party. Everybody's a Democrat in politics. But the, the, and the differences have played out in different ways, which explains why, what and why the COVID-19 committee has gotten involved here. What you seem to have in Hawaii is some of the things you have in the mainland and some of the things you don't. What you have here going on is that similar is that um, there are uh, there are differences between the governor and others, not so much the legislature, but uh, mayors. You also have some increasing concern with the legislators that they be more involved. But when this is very typical on the mainland, also legislatures want to get involved, but then when they try to, they can't do it very well because this kind of thing requires a different kind of response. So what you have here is is the House set up this COVID-19 task force, and it's very interesting to watch how they work. And if you anybody paid attention to the Monday meeting, you see they're not official. They recommend stuff. They don't include they include legislators. The Speaker of the House, Scott Psyche, is, is the chair, but they include a lot of influential economists and health officials and so on. And what they've tried to do is to fill a vacuum of leadership, that's not how they put it, that, uh, that the governor has shown. And what they tried to do this week is essentially to say what they, a continuation of what they've said before. We know what we're talking about. We're trying to drive others. Here are some recommendations. And they talked about um, some tweaks that can be made to quarantine. But mainly what this committee is trying to do right now is to achieve some kind of consensus on what the travel policy and, and testing should be so that it's more consistent and that, it, uh, and that it tries to goose the governor a little bit more to be more accommodating and less um, and more uh, consultative on, on the matters. So what they're really worried about is you got a bunch of mayors who want to go off in different kinds of directions maybe for good reasons and maybe not. But I think the important thing to understand is that this committee uh, has tried very hard to fill the vacuums in leadership in different ways that, um, uh, to, that it, it's not so much about out-and-out conflict the way you find in other states. So remember, it was this committee that really pushed very hard on uh, contact tracing when nobody would give any information about whether it existed. And now what they're trying to do, do is build this kind of consensus. So that's kind of the, the dynamic of, of where things are. Um, you know, there's one other thing I should mention, which is true in Hawaii also, but not as much as it is everywhere else. Uh, and not everywhere else, and lots of other places. People's attitudes toward the pandemic have changed over time as, we, as we've learned how to live with them and also as we've gotten a little bit more impatient with them. So it's not this immediate response, you know, uh, th that same kind of crisis response, even in states where the rates are very high. Um, the other thing is that what we've not quite understood yet is that this is a very different kind of emergency. Most of the time when a governor uses emergency powers, the way Ige uses it here and the way he's used them in the past, it's for specific things that have a time limit to them. Floods end. 
tornadoes and hurricanes and those kind of things. This goes on and on, and it makes the issue much more complicated over time. So if you look at the COVID committee, the COVID committee is not just interested in the regulations for, you know, behavior, but it also has in mind the long-term future, the economic future, how we bring uh, – um, how we bring in um, tourism and, and all those kinds of things. That's changed everywhere. That's also changed in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, we, we are COVID-weary. I mean, let's admit it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, the, and the, the, the situation is dynamic. It is changing very exactly. fast. And there are the guidelines that are also changing, you know, with the CDC coming out saying that maybe the quarantine should be five or ten days, not 14 you know, so yep. so it has gone back and forth. It's not easy, and and the virus is spreading at different rates across the country. That's why you've got this unevenness, right? Yes, and and that gets back to this whole kinds of you can call it constitutionally based conflicts between uh, governors and legislatures. If you think about it, legislatures can't react that quickly to all these kinds of changes that happen. You know, every time CDC comes up with something new, every time there's a new report on how bad or how worse it is in terms of uh, the number of cases, that's generally the job that that an executive branch does, whether it's a governor or or a a presidency, the executive branch is, is made to act faster. After a while, the legislature gets a little bit tired of, uh, and so do other people, of, of having some executive, say a governor, impose things on, on them and, and on others. But there doesn't seem to be a very good way of accommodating that, and that's why in lots of states this ends up in court. So, yeah, it's a fluid, it's both fluid and it's continuing, and that makes the uh, that makes the governance issue a much more complicated issue. And it also suggests what the, what the COVID committee is trying to do, which is to say we're neither one of those, and that's an advantage to us because we can speak from our own legitimacy, our own expertise, and our own political experience. Um, whether you think it's been successful or not is, uh, is uh, you know, your choice. I think they've actually been pretty good. But that's that's what they're trying to do in this context. Yeah, I mean, I, I do understand, you know, it, it would be a lot simpler if we had one rule. Uh, yeah. And, and at the same time, we are a, an island state, and each island, each county has their own unique situation. They have fewer uh, beds, fewer ventilators. And, and so, you know, I, I see that point of view as well. Uh, sure. But, uh, I mean, it. I think we're all trying to to do our best and, and get to the, you know, do, do the best by our economy and by our people. Um, it's not always easy. No, it's not always easy. And that's partially, I mean, in an important way, that's the role of leadership. Um, and it's the, it's the role of informal negotiations. Um, so much of this depends upon that. It depends upon the legitimacy, legitimacy of others. And um, that's, that's a skill. And I think Part of what the undercurrent is here, both among the committee and I think among the mayors, is that the governor is not really good at it. By the same token, as you say, the, if the mayors say, yeah, each island is different, but the tourist industry is the tourist industry, you know, and, and that uh, they, this is a state and, and the, essentially the, the tension between city and state is a regular part of government all the time. You've heard it many times about we should have more grassroots uh, uh, authority here. This one raises it with a vengeance because it's such an important issue. Yeah, I mean, we've seen lots of white papers come out this year. <laughs> yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah, lots of white papers. Well, partly because you've got academics on the committee and they like to write white papers, <laughs> uh, but also because that's a way to try to bring about some kind of in, you know, information fairly rapidly uh, with a group that doesn't have uh, doesn't have a dog in the fight. That's neither a, a you know a reluctant legislature or a governor who uh, thinks that he uh, should make all of the decisions. It's an attempt to be an influencer. Yeah, but but it is also our economy and uh, tourism is a big part of it. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, uh, yeah. we have been trying to manage tourism. So uh, all all part of uh, an effort to. Uh, Hopefully get us in a good place. Oh, yeah. I mean, frankly, you'd have to be a deity to be able to get the balance right. Who knows? <laughs> but that's what the constant fluid 
fluid balance is, and mm-hmm. one of the ways that you try to do it is through data. But data doesn't data doesn't speak for itself. You yeah. have to get other people to speak for it, and that's where it gets complicated. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science at UH Manoa. He joins us regularly with his thoughts on the Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marsh Cafe, we'll learn about CARES Act funding and how it is being applied for telehealth services on Hawaii Island. We'll find out how the team at Hope Services are now able to upgrade their technology and connectivity to perform COVID response to homeless communities. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. This morning, we're testing your nautical history. On October 31st, 1796, a British sailing vessel named Arthur hit a patch of coral and was driven onto the rocks when a storm hit them west of Pearl Harbor. The ship's captain made the difficult decision to abandon the sinking ship, and crew members had to scramble into lifeboats to escape. Unfortunately, six of the 22 men drowned in the attempt. Survivors came on shore at an area known to Hawaiians as Kalailoa. Over 140 years later, the military commissioned a naval air station, and the area quickly became a central hub for military aviation in the Pacific during World War II. The base continued in service after the war and was eventually decommissioned and reopened as Kalailoa Airport. For today's quiz, we want you to name the sea captain of the Arthur. It was the first recorded Western shipwreck in the Hawaiian Islands. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Today's reality check features Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Nick Ruby. He's been on top of the public corruption case of the former police chief and his wife. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on today. So, yeah, I mean, it's seven and a half years, I think, this has been dragging on. Well, yeah, and that's just the time that the public has seen this dragging on. I mean, this is a major public corruption scandal that we saw involving Uh, the former police chief, his prosecutor wife, and several Honolulu police officers, of course, um, for their attempts to frame a family member of the Kalohas for the theft of their mailbox. Now, that mailbox case and that frame job, of course, was meant to sort of cover up for other crimes that the Kalohas had been committing, um, including bank fraud and identity theft for many years. But this case really goes back years before the public ever knew anything was amiss with the Kalo. Well, I, I just remember, you know, thinking, gosh, this sounds so outlandish with the mailbox. Uh, you know, and this week we saw several shoes drop, you know, with the sentencing of Louis Kealoha and Catherine Kealoha and then the two police officers just yesterday. And you were tracking all that. How did that make you feel after seeing the closure after writing about, you know, this for so long? 
<laughs> well, you're right. It does bring a bit of closure to a, a years-long saga, right? Catherine K. Aloha is going to be headed to prison for 13 years, Louis K. Aloha, the former police chief, for seven years, Derek Hahn for three and a half years, Bobby Nguyen for four and a half years, of course. Um, Hahn and Nguyen said that uh, their attorneys said that they um, are considering appeals, but this was a major scandal that is sort of coming to a close. But I think we also have to remember here that this is not anywhere near over yet. Um, yes, these people were, were sentenced, uh, but there are other defendants who have pleaded guilty to crimes in this, in relation to this case, who have yet to uh, hear their sentences. That includes Catherine Kaloha's secret lover, uh, Jesse Ebersole, who uh, was a Big Island firefighter who lied to uh, during to investigators. Um, that includes Ransom Taito, one of Catherine Kaloha's victims, uh, who she stole money from when he was a minor, who lied on her behalf because she threatened to put his mother in jail. And, um, and, and, and then there is Lieutenant, uh, or sorry, excuse me, um, there's a former officer, Niall Silva. He's the former police officer who was the first to plead guilty in this case, admit that he had, in fact, taken part of this conspiracy. And really, his, his, his admission sort of opened up this entire case for federal investigators. Now, and there were, there were others, too, that, that, that were uh, arrested. I think it was Gordon, the major, right? Gordon... Um... Uh, Gordon Shirt Ishii, he was he was arrested and indicted as a part of this. He was found not guilty. Um, Dan, Danny Sellers, he's another uh, HPD officer who was indicted as a part of this major conspiracy. He pleaded uh, guilty to a lesser charge, uh, misdemeanor, and received probation. Um, but we have to remember that uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Wheat is still investigating uh, public corruption in Hawaii. Him and his team have uncovered a lot of alleged misdeeds and alleged crimes. And, you know, we're looking at Honolulu prosecuting attorney Keith Kaneshiro, um, an elected official who's received a target letter from the U.S. Justice Department. Um, Donna Leong, former corporation counsel for the city and county of Honolulu, and a member of Honolulu Mayor Kirk Koblo's cabinet has also received a target letter. Um, his uh, Caldwell's managing director, Roy Amamia, he's received a, a letter saying that he is a subject of the investigation, which means he might have um, information about potential criminal activities. And, you know, of course, we, we asked Michael Weeds, hey, what's the status of these investigations? When are the, the, the next round of indictments uh, coming down, if at all? And he mostly just smiled and changed the subject, um, which he normally does in these cases because, as you know, uh, federal investigators don't like to comment on ongoing investigations. Yeah, well, it just sounds like, yeah, this is one chapter uh, that is closing, but another one that is still open. Absolutely. And I think that the public really needs to be prepared to sort of witness more uh, more allegations. I mean, uh, the, the judge in the Kaloha case said that this really, like, shook the community down to its foundations. There was a lot of mistrust in government institutions afterwards. And I think that there's a lot of rebuilding that still needs to be done. I mean, if, if this case, the Kealoha case, highlighted anything, it's that our government institutions sort of failed us. Uh, the, 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 the people who are supposed to be uh, overseeing these individuals, the police commission, the ethics commission, uh, the office of disciplinary counsel, the, the mayor, they fell down on the job. Yeah. And we've just got to keep watching and uh, making sure this doesn't happen again and, and we can ferret out uh, what wrongdoing uh, uh, has happened. And so we'll stay tuned. Absolutely. That's all we can do. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Nick Groovy with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. Next time on The World, rapid COVID tests may hold the key to stemming the spread, but getting approval for inexpensive quick tests has been slow. The possibility for cheap tests 
that can be used at point of care or even at home is there. And we really have to come up with a strategy for how best to make use of them. Strategies for testing here and around the globe. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. You know, it's that time of year for holiday photos, but with COVID restrictions in place, it's been tough for local photographers to book clients while maintaining a safe space. One such photographer is Aubrey Horde of Upcountry Maui. She spoke with Conversations producer Jason Ubai about shifting her business and how her latest campaign aims to benefit working professionals and local charities. Prior to the pandemic, I was doing commercial and portrait photography, but the portrait side was mostly for visitors. It was mostly geared for visitors. And then post-pandemic, it's flipped. I think it was probably 75% based on visitor business and vacation portraits and senior portraits for visitors uh, on the beach. So high school seniors come out here to do their senior portraits, and it's a big deal. And then post-pandemic, I switched. It actually flipped because we had no visitors. So I've always had a studio that I've been able to use for headshots and commercial work. So that existed, thankfully. So when we were allowed to reopen, I was allowed to go back in with one or two people in the studio and then create headshots and and do the commercial work. And then now, with the portrait side, with lack of visitors, I'm marketing more to local clientele. So that's been family portraits and senior portraits, and a little, a little touch of school portraits, which was really interesting, because there's so many people that are homeschooling now, and they're not having the, the companies come in to do the, the actual photos in school. So I'm able to do that in the studio because we're able to do it on a small scale that's safe and according to CDC guidelines. Can you explain what that looks like what does your day look like when you have people coming in to line up what kind of precautions are you taking to keep folks safe yeah so we are actually we had to kind of work on our enhanced safety you know health and safety protocols so and we want to keep our clients safe throughout the entire experience so when we do in studio photo shoots versus on location photo shoots um, there's just more detail work that has to take place between any sessions So I allow extra time prior to or post a photo shoot. And then any kind of high-touch areas, everything's sanitized. We only allow one or two people in for each shoot anyway. And then what we're going to do is disinfect everything, the camera equipment, any kind of related gear. They're disinfected prior to and after each session, just in case. And then so only the people that are being photographed are able to come into the studio, Clients need to wear a mask to enter and depart. Um, I wear a mask the entire time during the studio visit. And then we have to practice social distancing. So we actually have the lines on the floor, which kind of cracks me up. Because we have, I have to be able to guide the client from six feet away whenever we're doing headshots. So it's been really, really interesting and actually really helpful to be able to think through that and then as a business to be able to reorganize that way. Can you talk about some of the commercial work you've been doing since uh, the crisis? Yeah, so for commercial business, I've actually been doing a lot of work for either um, so local companies that are showcasing their products or services, um, doing photo shoots that talk about and showcase the, the hotel safety procedures for guests so that they can communicate that through their um, newsletters and website, and then also doing you know fun little things with local jewelry designers, clothing collections, that sort of thing. So trying to really build up those similar small businesses on Maui to be able to get them to update their websites or create a website. If some of them were heavily visitor-based, then we're actually helping them to get it out there so it's on the web more so so that anyone can purchase the product. Can you tell me about the Maui Headshot Project? Sure. So that's really exciting to me because I, it was something that came to me right when we were allowed to reopen, and I actually had the studio. So I was allowed to reopen as a small business, and within that space and obviously complying with all the CDC guidelines, the first thing that came to mind is how do we get people back to work? What can I do as a small business? 
And I feel like I was really gifted with being allowed to um, not only apply for some of the grants because I had a freestanding studio, but then also when I received those grants, finding the best way to use them. So when I reopened, I went ahead and designed the Maui Headshot Project to help people who may be pivoting in their careers, give them an opportunity to get a professional in-studio headshot at an exclusive price, so the price is lower, um, and then it raises funds for local nonprofits. So what we've been working with so far is the Maui Food Bank, uh, Hawaii Animal Rescue Foundation, and the Maui Humane Society. So really trying to create a solution with the funding that I received. Um, and I think what's been most interesting is to see the number of people that have come through and to hear their stories. So that's been a really interesting thing as a small business owner is to hear why people come in to create a new headshot. It's actually it's pretty easy for people to participate. All they need to do is make a donation to the current selected nonprofit, and then right now it's the Maui Food Bank, and then they email me a receipt. And then what we'll do after that is we'll book them for a single in-studio headshot session. And so what's nice about that is they're able to provide much-needed funding, and if they need it, the tax donation on their end, to the nonprofit, and then they also get a headshot in return. So with headshots being a virtual handshake right now, everybody's doing Zoom calls, and all of these things where they're online, creating a new LinkedIn profile, any of those things, a professional headshot that actually is, is clear of you, it's in focus, it's professionally lit, it can make a huge difference in whether you're applying for a job or you're on a Zoom call or you're the main presenter. Those are huge things that you want to make sure that you look your best. You mentioned people have been coming in with interesting stories. Can you share some of those? Just what have you been hearing from people and why have they been coming to you for your services? You know, it's been interesting. I've had quite a few um, real estate agent, agents coming in, and I think with that, one of the things I'm noticing is that the trends, as we've reopened, I think a lot of people turned to different careers, and so I've seen a, a bigger increase in real estate agents. Um, I've also seen quite a few doctors, lawyers, and small business owners coming in you know, update their headshots, but make themselves more human so that people know who they're talking to, if they have to have those, any kind of telemedicine things. It's really making people more approachable. And I think having that really clean headshot online is so important. If you're able to look at someone and actually understand their personality and everything that comes through, when you actually meet them in person, you feel like you've met them through that photo. So I think one of the interesting stories is hearing people that have been uh, laid off. But I think having people come in and hearing their stories about, you know, working for an organization for 30 years and then receiving an email or a text message that they've been laid off and that's it. That's heart-wrenching to hear. And then for them to try to discover what they would like to do moving forward I think a headshot has a lot of positive effects on someone's psychological approach to the future. So when you have a new headshot and you can post that online and everybody says, oh my gosh, you look amazing, wow, all of a sudden it gives you confidence, I think, that you did not potentially have before, especially if you've been through the pandemic um, and you've been laid off or everything you thought was guaranteed is not. This gives you a new approach, a new outlook, someone that actually believes in you, being me, the photographer, looking at you, asking you questions, asking you what three things represent your brand. What do you get complimented on the most? How can I photograph you at your best to be able to have that come through in a headshot so that when someone sees that, that's your virtual handshake, and they feel like they've met you, and they're going to call you more likely they're going to call you than not because they're actually going to feel like they've met you. 
That was Aubrey Horde of Aubrey Horde Photography in Maui talking about the Maui Headshot Project. Right now you can make a donation to the Maui Food Bank and receive a discounted rate for a professional headshot. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This month, Matson Navigation is scheduled to take possession of a new cargo ship called the Matsonia. It's a twin sister to the vessel, the thoroughly modern Lurleen, that made her maiden voyage to the islands earlier this year. Today, we talked to Matson's archivist about a collection of vintage images that takes us back to the time of cruise ships and luxury hotels, part of the early years of the storage shipping company. The iconic images are now available to order as artwork on the company's website. Here's archivist Lynn Blocker-Krantz. I started with Matson back in 2000. It started out with creating a dinnerware line using the Eugene Savage artwork. I did that for about seven years, and during that time period, I also wrote a book about Matson's cruise ship era. It's called To Honolulu in Five Days, Cruising Aboard Matson's SS Lurleane. So it focuses on the Lurleane, but it also covered some of the other ships in, in the hotels, such as the Royal Hawaiian, Moana, Surf Rider, and Princess Kailani. And it just kept evolving. I saw these boxes, and I was working with them, and I thought, wow, you know, this really is a treasure trove. And Matson really, really is, really has saved all their history. I mean, going back to, I've gone back as far as 19... 12 and some things from actually 1882 old menus and it's just fascinating to read so i thought well i think that this really needs to be a little bit more organized <laughs> so was i started going through the boxes and i said i think we start archiving this um my background was in, in book publishing and, and product design and development and we just i talked to a couple of people at Matt's and i said what do you think if we start licensing this artwork out. And so I sat down with Corey Richard, and in 2007, we came out with a shirt together. So Matson Lyons Aloha shirt, and it's called Boat Day Aloha, and that shirt is still circulating today. It's printed many, many, many times. So that was like the first step in taking these wonderful archives that Matson has and, and, and turning it into a product that could be shared with the company and create products as well. And, and then it also appears on what was on Hawaii Five-0 for a long time, a lot of feature films. And so it's a great little archive. I just love, I love working with it. I love working with Matson. Obviously, it's been since 2000. So talk about the images that maybe people are not as familiar with. I think most people do identify the Eugene Savage images, which were at the Honolulu Museum of Art in that exhibit, Hawaii Deco. Those were menu covers, the Eugene Savage. They were featured in the museum for that uh, exhibit. When I started going through things, I found all these vintage, these old Aloha magazines. Matson actually had several magazines, several publications that they printed for many years. Um, there's one called Aloha, and those magazine covers are illustrated or beautiful photographs. Um, I just thought people might want to see these, and sure enough, they like them. So there's a lot of those popping up. I think we're at 100 or 102 images on the website, and we offer different substrates that one can have them printed on in different sizes and framed or not framed. Going to be adding a lot more, though. I always say that these archives are going to outlive me because I don't know if I'll ever get to see every box. Tell us about some of these images uh, because I don't know if they were all in really good condition. You know, I don't know if you've had to restore some. A lot of the images have been restored or retouched. Mind you, these are, I mean, these images are old. They go back to 1912. Them, like I said, from 1882. But there are, you know, there are menus, uh, menu covers, advertisements, and there's a lot of times there's mold or stains or a lot of coffee stains. I always find those, like someone set a mug on it, and <laughs> that really doesn't let the artwork come, the art come through. So I very meticulously work with a, someone who's 
really incredible at restoration, and we go over it dot by dot, line by line, and if the red doesn't look red, we're going to make it look red the way it used to. And so uh, are there any other stories you can share with us about maybe some restoration projects? or? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, one of my favorites, if you go, if you're in the website and you go to Royal Hawaiian, there's this incredible menu cover, and I'm always blown away by this because a lot of people have not seen it, and it's from the opening of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which was February 1st, 1927. It's called Royal Hawaiian Opening Night, and this was an image that was hanging on someone's wall at Matson in a glass frame that had a lot of, you know, sun exposure, and again, it had who only knows what had happened to a prior going into a frame. But um, the image was beautiful, and I knew that that had to be cleaned up. And But I saw all this kind of pinkish border background, and I went over with my, uh, the person who does restoration for me. He goes, you know there's a whole line illust- uh, illustration that goes all the way around this print? I'm like, no, I'm, <laughs> I don't really see it because it, it was just so faded. And um, he was able to bring that back. So with that beautiful illustrated border around the Royal Hawaiian program opening night, 1927, it is a beauty. And um, I'm blown away that we got it to look as good as it did. So they come, a lot of these things are kind of a, a mess, and some of them aren't, which is great. But I actually love the whole process of restoration to see it come in, you know, from a little clip that's behind a filing cabinet in the basement, and voila, you know, it ends up looking really good. And you've put together some exhibits for the hotel. Yes, yes. Um, I think I've been doing exhibits for the Royal, and Matt, it's Matt's and Royal Hawaiian exhibit since maybe 2000, 2009 or 2010. One of my favorites, which was the first one, and I love all of them, and many of them are favorites, was um, about Amelia Earhart and Matson. Matson uh, bought her plane over 1934 from, well, it was Lockheed Airport, which is now Burbank, on the Luralene from the Los Angeles port to Honolulu. And it was a, I mean, it was kind of like a publicity tour that she and her husband did. They stayed at the Royal. And during that whole time, Matson's photographer took photos of her flying here in Los Angeles, bringing her plane down, and then bringing it down, landing it, and then putting it onto a truck that took it down to the Luralene, the ship that she went over on uh, at the Long Beach port, or Los Angeles. And then they show her on the ship, getting off the ship, going to the Royal, uh, Amelia wearing a kimono, Amelia wearing a bathing suit, and standing up against a palm tree. I mean, there were photographs that one we thought had been lost and from one move to another. And then I found them in a box cleaning things out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, here they are. And it's a whole story. There's, I think there's about 62 images. So what I do at the exhibit and brainstorming with Matson is we turn them into these exhibits that tell this incredible story, the history of Matson involved with the Royal Hawaiian and the other hotels. And that's what I find so fascinating. You know, as I say, expression, every, every picture tells a story, don't it? I think that was uh, Rod Stewart. But in any case, that's how I feel when I see one of these images. I go, oh, there's a story. And then I put it all together, and, and that's how the exhibits end up being at the Royal. I've talked and, and spoken with people that used to work, you know, on the Lurleen in 1932, 33, and they, had, they shared wonderful stories and photographs and what it was like to order food and how they kept the ship running. So I have a lot of those archives as well, and they're not professional photographs, but... I certainly love getting the, the stories, and when I'm at the Royal, I, I, get story, I hear stories from people as well. 
it's certainly a treasure trove. And you look at these, and it is a, a way to travel back in time, so to speak. But they also, these images work very, very well as, you know, contemporary today because they've been, you know, restored and they're in formats that people would want to put on their wall. I'm just really glad that we have this up and running and that Mastin is sharing their archives uh, with the world now. That was Lindbacher Krantz, Matson's archivist. You can find the vintage images on the Matson website. That's how I found out about this story. He was looking on the shipping schedule. And we should know that Matson is an underwriter of HPR. It's expected that the vessel Matsonia will make her maiden voyage to Hawaii at the end of the month. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to UH Hilo professor Patrick Hart, who introduces us to a crimson honeycreeper in this week's Manu Minute. The Apapane is a direct descendant of a flock of finches that somehow flew from Asia over nearly 3,000 miles of open ocean and landed in the Hawaiian Islands more than 5 million years ago. It's one of over 55 species of birds, now known as the Hawaiian honeycreepers, that evolved from that original group. And nowadays, it's the only one left whose song can still be commonly heard on all the main Hawaiian islands, especially if you're in a forest where the ohia lehua are blooming, as their curved bills and brush-like tongues are perfectly adapted to forage on the nectar of these flowers. Even though Apapane are a brilliant bright red in color, they are often more easily detected by their beautiful song, which has recently been found to vary between the islands and even between different forest patches or kipuka on the same island. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. And Hawaii Public Radio's newest feature, Manu Minute, is now a weekly podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Earlier in the show, we reviewed the nautical history related to a geographic point on Oahu, named after an 18th century sea captain. History books tell us that he and the crew of the British ship Arthur sailed into rough water after leaving the port Honolulu and was badly damaged after hitting a patch of coral near the western edge of Pearl Harbor. The crew attempted to escape the shipwreck by getting into lifeboats, and in the struggle, six sailors drowned. Survivors of the shipwreck landed near a tract of land that Native Hawaiians called Kalailoa. The area later became known as Barber's Point, named for Henry Barber, the captain of the 100-foot British vessel that ran aground in 1796. As the story goes, Barber was on his way from Honolulu to Kauai to pick up a load of yams when a storm hit Oahu. And I'm pleased to report that our winner today is Hans Van Tilburg. So happy that he won and called. Uh, He is a uh, very well-known underwater archaeologist. Hans, we need to talk. Support for HPR comes from Hoku's, wishing everyone warm and safe holidays, with seasonal menus by executive chef Jonathan Mizukami, bringing new direction from culinary experiences across the globe. Kahalaresort.com. Imagine spending $4 million on a painting and then getting a call. He goes, you know that yellow on the painting? I go, yeah, I know that yellow. That's why I bought the painting. That yellow is so beautiful. He goes, well, that particular chrome yellow wasn't invented until 1990. Four decades after the artwork was supposed to have been painted. 
inside the largest fake art scheme in modern U.S. history on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. More at honolulumuseum.org. Honolulu Hale was expecting the delivery of its annual holiday tree this morning. The Honolulu City Lights event won't be the same this season due to COVID. There will be no light parade. The official lighting of the tree is set for next week, and you'll be able to enjoy the decorations from a distance. Best to be safe in your car driving by. The display of Shaka Santa and Tutumele is up in front of City Hall. They are wearing, of course, face masks. So we thought we would go back in time and enjoy some Shaka Santa memories of a different time. We talked to Joe Magaldi, who played the role as City Hall's warm body Shaka Santa for more than 30 years. You may recall that Joe Magaldi served as the city's transportation director under Honolulu Mayor Frank Fossey. Magaldi knows a thing or two about getting around. He has run the Honolulu Marathon every year, except for this one, because it was canceled over concerns about the pandemic. Magaldi turns 92 in March, and he still manages to get his 10 miles in every day. He shared some of his Shaka Santa stories with us earlier this week. It was so much fun. And, you know, if it wasn't for Frank Fossey, I never would have been the only Santa Claus at City Hall, which I've been for many, 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 many years. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed being with the people, with the kids, uh, with the seniors, and we had a lot of fun. Do you remember the day when Mayor Fossey asked you to be Santa? I was outside looking at the Mr. and Mrs. Santa that have displayed City Hall for a long time. He came over and he says, Joe, yes, Santa, that's it. Don't give me any. Go just be Santa. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Mayor. And then I became Santa. And I was the only Santa at City Hall for, gee, something like 30, maybe 40 years. And uh, what they really liked about it, the people, was the bare legs. They couldn't believe a Santa with bare legs. Yeah, you got to wear jams, right? Yeah, because <laughs> I always wore shorts and, and the bare legs and uh, flip-flops. Uh, it, it was just so much fun because people enjoyed Santa so much, and they couldn't believe they'd have a Santa Claus with bare legs. Now, you have watched the City Lights event grow over the decades, uh, and this year it's it's going to be different, you know, because we, we worry about COVID, and you're on an age. Being Santa out in the community puts you at risk. The, the thing is, I hate to see city lights are, are not going to be really anything at all this year, and it's because of COVID, which is unfortunate. People miss Santa because Santa always tried to help people. Uh, that was the main purpose of being Santa Claus, helping people make them happy and wish them happy holidays. And because you've been Santa at uh, Honolulu Holiday for so many years, I'm sure a lot of those little kids who had pictures came back as adults with their kids. Some people still have the pictures, and sometimes they'll send one to me. They haven't done it this year, but they sometimes. But the seniors, are the, to me, as I mentioned before, the senior citizens in Santa Claus were fantastic. And we, I had so much fun with them. People waited in line forever just to come up and sit by Santa, or be behind him. They, they were so affectionate to Santa, and Santa tried to do it in return, so maybe I didn't do it right all the time, but we, we just had so much fun uh, enjoying Christmas every year. Uh, they looked forward. They waited in line to just come and see Santa have a picture taken. We've never seen so many kids waiting outside. And then the seniors, the seniors in their wheelchair, they're waiting. I think I brought joy into kids and the seniors uh, on a continual basis, because I enjoyed being Santa Claus. Well, I love, you know, the Christmas tree display there in the courtyard, you know, how each department would uh, compete. Gosh, I, I, I think I remember, you know, we had a, a, a tree, I think it was in your department, right? Transportation Services, didn't yeah, you have? that's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> buses and rail? That's right. <laughs> uh, and, and the thing is, this year, you're not going to have, a, you're going to have some, but not very much. The other thing I enjoyed doing was, uh, the horse and buggy, because uh, I used to take that by City Hall and downtown and back uh, every night. 
for about two hours. And that was a lot of fun because people would stop you and take pictures as you walked along. No, walked along. As you were uh, driven along in, in the in the, uh, the various things that we did. And we had a lot of fun there, too. If Fossey was alive, we'd probably do it. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. He would. He would. That's how he was. I mean, you know, uh, of any mayor and all the mayors, I, I can't say uh, other than he was the best and also would be the best mayor for Honolulu. Well, he he liked you, I think, because uh, you're Italian, right? <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents came from uh, Sicily, and then they went up into uh, Italy. And, but uh, they were they were pretty good guys. They weren't. Mafia. Well, uh, you know, I know it's probably going to be hard for the Fosse family, too, because that was something that the whole family enjoyed, this tradition that uh, Mayor Fosse started. I still get emails from Joyce. I just got another one yesterday wishing me, you know, Merry Christmas and ho, 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 Santa. <laughs> I would like to wish everybody the, the best Christmas ever. It's very unfortunate that we can't be that close and we have to be separated by a plastic barrier or what have you, but I think everybody, I wish them the best Christmas ever, and Santa Claus will always be around. Yeah, Shaka Santa, we certainly appreciate uh, all the time and uh, good feeling that you brought down there to Honolulu Hale, and, and thank you for sharing your memories. Okay, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, hey, that was Shaka, uh, Shaka Santa, Joe Magaldi, recalling some of the good old days when you could sit on his lap and take pictures with him. Those days are past. For links to the updated schedule of Honolulu City Lights, head to our website. Well, we have to go now, but tomorrow we talk seeds. It's a call-in show. Everything you wanted to know about the best times to plant here in the islands, we gather the experts to answer your questions as you flex your green thumbs. Want to know about the seeds you buy? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.